when a group of friends have a car accident in the middle of nowhere, it seems like the worst is yet to come. Until a little old lady showed up. And then we talk a lot about doomsday cults on this show. Armed offshoots of major religions that believe the world is going to end soon. These cults often just fizzle out, are dismantled, or are gunned down. But today we're going to take a look at one of those cults that actually succeeded in leaving their mark on the world. Today on Dead Rabbit Radio. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of Dead Rabbit Radio. I'm your host, Jason Carpenter. I'm having a great day. I hope you guys are having a great day too. I hope you guys are having a lot of fun doing whatever you're doing. We got a really cool episode for you. So first off, let's give a shout out to one of our legacy Patreon supporters. Coming into Dead Rabbit Command right now, it's Mokushi. Everyone give it up to Mokushi. Yay! I think that's the first time I've ever shouted out yay during one of these introductions. So there you go, Mokushi. Mokushi, you're going to be our captain, our pilot of this episode. If you guys can't support the Patreon, that's fine too. I totally understand. Just help spread the word about the show. There's flyers in the show notes if you want to print them out. Pass them around town. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Talk about it online. We also have a merch store. I always forget to mention that. So that's another way to support the show. Mokushi, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the... Keys to the Jason Jalopy. We're going to take a little road trip. We're leaving behind Dead Rabbit Command. We are headed out to Karelia, Russia. (laughs) Mokushi's driving this beat-up old junker that we still drive around after, what, 696 episodes? Out to Karelia, Russia. Specifically, we're headed to the Vusko Lakes in Karelia, Russia. It's summer 1993. And it's nighttime. The stars are in the sky. The moon is looking down on Earth. It's jealous because it's got a bunch of cool people living on it. And there's a car full of tourists driving through the Vuska Lakes area. This car of tourists, we don't have the names of these people, so we'll say Benny is driving the car. (laughs) I don't know how many people are in the car. I don't need to give them all names and backstories. But anyways, Benny is driving the car. We got Veronica in the passenger. I just said I wasn't going to do this, and I did it anyways. Benny's driving the car. I'll introduce the rest of the people if needed. Driving through the Vuosko Lakes area. It's a magical place. Every time you pronounce it, it comes out differently. No one has figured out why that happens. And there's a car accident. So someone's like, great driving, Benny. And Benny goes, oh, oh, Charlie, the guy sitting behind me. The guy sitting behind me, Charlie, you're always criticizing my driving. Literally backseat driving. But then... Veronica, who was in the passenger seat, is holding her head, and she's like, oh, I don't feel so good. I banged my head against this thing in front of the car. (laughs) The tree, she flies out of the car. She hits the tree. One of the people in the car is injured. Uh, And they have a concussion. They have a concussion. So Benny, Charlie, and then the other people in the car, they have to take care of Veronica. This is 1993. This is back when cell phones were fairly rare. And I'm pretty sure in the Soviet Union, they were non-existent. Well, at this point, it was still Russia, but they still didn't have top-line technology. Vanessa, they're in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> Her name changed due to the concussion. Now she's Vanessa. The point is, is that... <laughs> let's back up here. The point is that a group of tourists got in a car accident, and one of them got a concussion. Let's, that's, let's cut it down to its finest details. They see a little hut nearby they see this little building off on the side of the road and they're like dude we have to like go there like we don't have a cell phone 
this car is all busted up. Maybe someone's living in the hut. Maybe they have a cell phone. Isn't that something that people who live in thatched houses tend to have? They take her to the hut, and there's this old lady, and she opens the door. Old woman's kind of motioning them in. So they bring Vanessa in, and they lay her down on the table. Or maybe a bed. <laughs> they lay her down somewhere, probably something more comfortable. They're knocking over the old lady's soup. They're all, get out of the way, hungry lady. We have this person to take care of. They lay Vanessa down, and the old lady walks up, and she doesn't say anything to anyone. She's just, like, tending to their wounds. Other people have, like, bumps and scrapes and things like that. And Vanessa could walk on her own. She just had a concussion. It's not that bad, but she just she was a bit of a drama queen. They made her carry her everywhere. And the old lady's tending to all of their wounds and stuff like that. And they'd be like, oh, Dasvidanya, lady. And she'd be like, no, no, no. She wouldn't want to talk to him. She's just, like, cleaning out their wounds putting, like, goo, putting, like, like old lady stuff on them. You know, I, I mean, when I said that, I meant, like, you know, stuff that, like, a witch doctor would make, not, like, old women secrete something. Anyways, he she's taking care of their wounds, and then all the tourists, Benny and Charlie and Vanessa, are like, oh, we're super sleepy. And the other unnamed people, they get sleepy, too. And they all fall asleep. And the old lady's just standing over them as they're like, uh... The next morning, Benny wakes up. He's the first to wake up. He's like, what, huh, what? The last thing I remember is walking to some old lady's house in the middle of nowhere, but he's looking around. He's out in the open. He's laying out in the open. The fresh Russian grass is against his back. It tickles him. And he looks up and he sees this beautiful blue sky. Might have been overcast that day. That wasn't in the notes either. But he looks up, he sees a beautiful blue sky. And he notices he's not in the thatched house anymore. And he goes, dudes, wake up, guys, wake up. You won't believe what happened. And everyone wakes up. They're not in the house. They're now in this. They're now all in the ruins of a granite stoned walled house that had collapsed. And they're like, whoa. And then their wounds healed rapidly. They look at him, they're like, ah! The scabs are disappearing. They fall off. So that... (laughs) That's the story. That's the story. That's not like some goofy story that your brother told you because he couldn't come up with anything scary that night. That's actually from the book The Soviet UFO Files, written by Paul Stonehill. I got it from thinkaboutitdocs.com, one of my favorite websites. The reason why I wanted to share this story with you guys is because... This is one of the stories where you think, what is the phenomenon going on here? Assuming this story's true. Assuming this story's true. Could be completely made up. Paul Stonehill could be a really bad older brother, and he's like, oh, this story will really scare those kids. This will keep those kids from driving through Russia and getting car accidents. It's funny, we're in episode, like, 696. I have mentioned the Fae maybe once or twice. They are not my favorite form of paranormal activity. I don't like those stories. I don't really... Sometimes I've covered stories about dwarfs dressed up as ninjas. I actually really like that one. But, like, fairies in general, I'm not a huge fan of them. Little people floating around, wings and stuff like that. The whole, like, fairy circle. I did another one. It was a long time ago. It was the one... It was the city in the Philippines... That if you went there and you ate a piece of cheese, a t- typical face stuff. It was actually from the Conspiracy Theory Iceberg. But if you eat their food, they're trapped there. I've never really liked Fay lore. 
Because it's all the same, right? The idea... Some of you guys like Jason have no idea what you're talking about. Baylor is fairy. It's basically the British version of that. And the, all the stories are the same. They kind of collide with alien abductions where you're going about your own business. And due to no fault of your own, you're taking to an alien realm. In this case, some sort of fairy realm. And you're... If you eat any of their food, you're stuck there forever. That detail is not in accounts with gray aliens, but a lot of people consider fey encounters similar enough to alien encounters that they think one may be the other. Some people say that old-timey fey encounters are actually based on Middle Ages people getting abducted by gray aliens. And how would you describe that? You'd say, I went to some fairy realm, because you have no other sense of context for that. Some people say, and this is less popular, because that kind of makes sense. If you believe aliens have been around for tens of thousands of years, they would have to pop up throughout human history. Other people say that, no, gray aliens are actually fairies. That, that will never catch on. I don't believe that will ever catch on. Because it's just not intriguing enough. And yeah, I'm not a huge fan of the fae. But when you read this story, I don't think of it as fairy. I don't think of it as any sort of fairy activity. Although it does fall into those things, <laughs> since I don't really like fairy stuff. I think this falls into portals, time slips. Because the fact that they saw the hut and they went in there at night, and then it's not like they were ever tempted to stay in this special realm when they woke up. They were still in the same general area. But the house that they saw the night before was actually gone for ages. It was just this structure that had been up. Or there's even the thing that this is where I was thinking of. I think of it more like this. Like the television show Twin Peaks, a lot of it is based on you'll be walking through a normal part of the world. You'll go, you'll stand on a rock, and you'll get electrocuted. You'll be walking through the forest, and the next thing you know, you're in some other dimension. This one guy's walking down an alley, and he ends up in the White Lodge, and there's this eight-foot-tall dude who tells him to go get a green rubber glove it'll turn him into a superhero the show's bizarre the show is bizarre i love it i just watched it again all the way through for like the third time but I, i'm thinking that i think that the car crashed that happened they were all busted up and what was really there what they really would have should have seen if they had just continued on their journey would have been a granite stone structure it looked like an old building that had started to collapse but because they got in this accident, they kind of moved to a different mental state. When, when they looked at it, they saw the hut. And that hut and that old lady were not of this, not only not of this timeline, but not of this earth. The fact that the old lady wasn't even talking makes me think that the old lady knew, <laughs> knew that if she started talking, it would be a dead giveaway. She'd have like 15 tongues in her mouth and her eyes are rolling back. Ah. So it's an interesting story. That's the way I read it. That this was some sort of interdimensional being. And she appears as this old lady. Because that's who takes care of you, right? If you had to imagine a caretaker. Yeah, you could be a flaming angel with ten wings. And he's like, let me clean your wounds. But it's most likely going to be a grandmother, a maternal figure. And that's how the universe portrayed this. Could be Faye. And if, if it was Faye, I apologize for wasting your time. Because I don't like covering the Faye. I actually know you guys enjoy the Faye. It's just not my cup of tea. But could be Faye. Could be a time slip. She could have been an old lady in ancient Russia. And one day, one day she tells her neighbors, guys, you won't believe what happened. These people showed up in the oddest of clothing. And I just treated them. And then I gave them a bit of, a bit of sleeping drugs. And then I dragged them out of my house. And I don't know what happened to them. They were gone the next day.
or it could be this interdimensional healer event. We don't know. It's in the UFO files. I don't think it really has anything to do with aliens, but who knows? I just think it's an interesting story, and it's one of those stories that because it doesn't precisely fit the lore of any real one category, it's truly a puzzling story. Mokushi, I'm going to go ahead and toss you the keys of the carpenter copter. We are saying goodbye to Karelia, Russia. We're there like, we still need help working on our car. We're like, see you guys later. We're flying away from these people. They're still stranded out there to this day. Mokushi, fly us on out to Saudi Arabia. I was shocked when I found out that this story happened. I've mentioned it recently on this show. There's a website called Crazy Facts. And I go to every day and you just hit a button and it gives a random fact. It gives you a little dopamine hit when you learn something new. Plus, I found a lot of cool stuff from there. I was shocked this story was real. This sounds like it should have already been, like, uh, at least a couple movies. We're in Saudi Arabia. Specifically, at the Great Mosque of Mecca. It is the home of the Kaaba. It is the direction that Muslims worldwide pray to. Once in their lifetime, a Muslim must make their pilgrimage to Mecca. This is... It's hard to overstate its importance in world religious history, especially in the Muslim religion. On November 20th, 1979, it's just a day like any other. The prayer services start at 5 a.m. There's 50,000 worshippers at the Great Mosque of Mecca. As people are sitting here praying, they start to hear commotion to their left, to their right. Off in the distance in the crowd, they see people jumping up. They see movement in the crowd. The prayer has been interrupted as four to six hundred people are jumping up during the prayer. Men and women alike throwing off their robes and brandishing automatic weapons. Panic immediately sets in. You have a crowd of 50,000 people packed into this area. And all of a sudden, orders are being shouted. You're standing there and you see someone with a weapon at the Great Mosque of Mecca where violence is forbidden. He points it at a local police officer and shoots him dead. There were police officers at the Great Mosque of Mecca, but because violence was forbidden... They only carried billy They only had these little billy clubs, right? So they could kind of push people out. If you're getting unruly, they could get you out of there. They weren't armed with weapons. And all of a sudden, you had four to 600 people. They were never able to figure out exactly how many people had infiltrated the Great Mosque of Mecca that day. Orders are being shouted. Everyone's freaking out. Two police officers end up getting shot. People are pulling out chains. They were fully prepared to take over the mosque. They begin to chain the exits shut. And you're stuck there. At the time, the great mosque was being renovated. There was a worker up there. And he sees all of the stuff that's going on. He's able to get to a phone, starts calling for help, letting people know what's going on. That is when the phone lines are cut. This group releases most of the 50,000 hostages, because you really just can't keep control of that many people. But a couple hundred are kept behind. As thousands and thousands of hostages are running out of the area, this group is putting snipers in the minarets that surround the Great Mosque of Mecca. They now have complete control of the area. 
But who are they? They are followers of a man known as Muhammad Abdullah al-Qahtani. He was believed by his followers to be the Mahdi, or the Redeemer. He's basically a figure in apocalyptic Muslim belief. He was a man who was going to come to earth before the final days, before Jesus comes back and begins to destroy the evil of the world. The Mahdi would come and be the Redeemer before this process. Every religion is going to have people pop up and claim to be important figures. And there's a whole list of people over the centuries who have claimed to be the Mahdi. Who've claimed to be this figure in the end times. But the reason why Muhammad Abdullah al-Qahtani was able to convince four to six hundred people. Because again, they don't know for sure how many people moved into this area. Of this was... He was popping up in Saudi Arabia at a time of change, at a time of social change. And this seems to be the best time for any sort of hardliner to make their case. Saudi Arabia was becoming very westernized at this point. And for the people of Saudi Arabia, they go, this is not right. This isn't right. I'm opening up the newspaper. There's pictures of women in the newspaper. This is borderline pornographic. And the powers that be in Saudi Arabia goes, no, no, this is the way the world is going. Like, yeah, I know, we have those old ways, but listen, this is progressive, right? I don't think that was the actual word they used, but it's okay, we're going to become a more open society, we're going to become more free, we're going to become more liberated. That didn't sit well with followers of Muhammad Abdullah al-Qahtani, and his followers were growing every single day. When you have social change you will have detractors of that. This was this group's goals. They wanted to kick out all the Western powers of Saudi Arabia. That was bin Laden's goal as well. That was one of his main things. To this day, there are a lot of people in Saudi Arabia who do not like the fact that there are Westerners, that there is U.S. military equipment right outside of the Great Mosque of Mecca. It is a sticking point for a lot of people in Saudi Arabia. So they wanted to kick out all the Western powers. They wanted to kick out all non-Muslims. You have to be a Muslim to visit the Great Mosque of Mecca, but they wanted to get rid of all non-Muslims in Saudi Arabia altogether. And no television. Because they saw that as a leading factor in the degradation of Saudi Arabia. Muhammad Abdul Al-Qahtani had support where it counted. He didn't control the government. He didn't control the media. But he had a lot of allies in the National Guard. And when his plan was being talked about in mosques, when his plan was openly preached in the streets, people knew that there were elements out there who did not like the way Saudi Arabia was opening up. And it was touching these people's hearts, and they began funneling weapons into the mosque. This was something that was planned for. And people would learn that because of how hard it was to remove these men and women from the great mosque of Mecca. After that phone call is made and thousands of people are running out of the great mosque, a hundred security officers are sent in to retake it. They don't know really what's going on. They got a phone call saying that people with guns are taking over the mosque. They see thousands of people running out. They have no idea about the snipers and the minarets. They learn that very quickly. As these hundreds of security officers are running into the mosque, sniper fire is just taking them out. 
and the people in the mosque who are heavily armed begin shooting out of the mosque, and it is a bloodbath. These security officers have to pull back. Their losses are too heavy. So a meeting is called now. You get members of the Saudi Arabia army. You got members of the National Guard, which they don't know that members of the National Guard are in on this. Not all of them, but some of them were. This meeting had the Saudi Arabian army officials, the National Guard, and there was a French special operations team in the area. They just happened to be there. And they begin talking about this, and they're trying to figure out how to retake the mosque. Because you just can't have a bunch of people with weapons take over the holiest site in the Muslim world. They begin coming up with a plan. Step one. By that first night, the entire city of Mecca, there's a city that surrounds this mosque, the entire city is evacuated. It's a ghost town. Saudi Arabian army comes in, National Guard, the French special ops team is there. They now don't have to worry about civilian casualties. They don't know what they're going to do, but they wanted to clear this out. They have no idea what's coming next or what this group's goals are. They haven't communicated this yet. Now, it is religious law. You cannot commit violence in the Grand Mosque. Now, obviously, these people in here are not playing by that rule. They had no problem with slaughtering these soldiers. They had no problem killing these police officers. They have no problem holding these hostages. But according to the religious laws, you can't even uproot a plant in the Great Mosque. So the government reaches out to the ulama, which are the interpreters of religious law. There's this long discussion and finally the religious leaders come forward and they say, in this instance, yes, you can use deadly force. So this is the plan now. Now that they've got their clearance, the Saudi forces are going to have a three-pronged attack towards the Great Mosque. There's three main gates. It makes sense. They're just going to push through overwhelming might. They rush in. They are better equipped. They have numerical opposition. It doesn't matter. It is another bloodbath. These snipers are wiping them out. You can't get in with raw military might outside of bombing the area, which was nothing they had planned on doing. So now they've had two full assaults towards the mosque, completely repelled. So they pull back. I can't believe this story is not more widely known. Am I the only one who's never heard of this? I mean, I was alive during... I mean, I was three, but this is insane. Because what happens next is the government of Saudi Arabia says, listen, we've sent in two waves of forces to try to retake it. They're picking us off. We need this back. But let's just starve them out. We're just going to surround the place. We're going to lay siege to the Great Mosque of Mecca. Eventually, they'll just give up. They won't have any food. For two weeks, the army surrounded the mosque. For two weeks, nothing changed. No one gave up. No one begged for food. No one came out hoping for forgiveness. The hostage takers were resolute. Remove all Western powers. Kick out all non-Muslims. Remove television. We need to return to the old ways. At this point, it's become incredibly embarrassing for the government of Saudi Arabia. You have the Saudi King Khaled. He's watching this whole thing, and he's seen 
the holiest site has been taken over on his watch. He can't break the back of these hostage takers. What is he going to do? Two weeks is too long. He orders a final assault. We have to go in. Casualties be damned. The Saudi Arabian government calls the special forces, the French special forces, and say, we, want, we know you guys, this is what you do for a living. This is what you literally do for a living. You break into places and take them over. We want you to join us on this raid. However, you can't enter the Great Mosque of Mecca unless you're a Muslim. So will you convert to Islam and fight alongside us? The French commandos go, yeah, let's do it. So they had this short ceremony. They converted to Islam. They geared up along with their Saudi Arabian army compatriots. And they headed off towards Mecca. The Grand Mosque of Mecca apparently has tunnels underneath it. Which would kind of be a no-brainer if you were going to infiltrate an area. It seems the reason why they weren't using these tunnels in the first place was because you couldn't... Originally, they were just trying to send a bunch of people in. They were trying to invade it like you were... Like you would any fort. So you just send in a mass amount of people, you'd overwhelm them with numbers. Hopefully, you could just overpower them and save hostages. When they start using these tunnels, they know that the combat is going to be very close quarters and extremely high casualties for even the hostages. Because when they're getting in these tunnels that take them underneath the mosque, the special forces and the Saudi Arabian army get into their positions. And the first thing they do, they begin to pump gas into the tunnels. They begin to pump knockout gas into the tunnels. So that way, anyone who is posting the tunnels, because most likely the hostage takers know about them, they're going to get knocked out. The special forces move through these smoke-filled tunnels. They get underneath the mosque itself, and they begin drilling holes through the floor and then throwing grenades up into the mosque. Grenade after grenade after grenade is popping up through these holes. Nobody knew what was going on in the mosque. And this is why this was not the best plan. You had insurgents and hostages who had been kept away from their loved ones for two weeks sitting there and a grenade would roll towards them and explode. Grenades just being lobbed blindly into the mosque. The rebels start to try to regroup. They don't. They didn't expect this. You know that there's tunnels underground, but you don't expect grenades to come out of them. They try to regroup. At this point, they're trying to get out of the mosque. And as they're running through the courtyard, they are now being shot on sight. During this chaos, snipers begin to panic. They begin missing their shots. They begin to try to retreat. They are also killed. Most die at the scene. Some are captured. And a few escape into the empty city of Mecca. Still abandoned. For days. Small gun battles erupted across the city. As military forces were tracking down these dudes. Killing them on the spot. These numbers are debatable, but the generally accepted number, some people say these are too small, but general accepted number is th- on all sides, military, insurgent, and civilian, 300 people were killed over the course of this event, and 1,000 people wounded. 
but there are people who believe the number is much higher because they don't even know how many people had come into the mosque. They said four to 600. They don't have an accurate count. 68 of these insurgents who were captured were actually taken to different cities across the country and publicly beheaded. King Khaled wanted to make it known that this is what happens if you follow the path of extremism. He could have executed them all in a single location, but no, he wanted to make it known across the country. He had these 68 people taken to all these different cities and they were publicly beheaded. But how this story ends is actually the most fascinating part of the story. Because I'm telling you this story about women appearing in newspapers and Saudi Arabia becoming more westernized and more progressive, and you're listening to it, like I was reading it, and I thought, but wait a second. That's not Saudi Arabia today. Saudi Arabia is, I just read in the news today, Saudi Arabia executed a a kid. He took part in an Arab Spring protest when he was 17 years old, and they arrested him when when he was 23, and they cut his head off. Uh, about two days ago. They said they found a photo on his phone that was obscene. And he did the whole Arab Spring thing when he was 17, which was years ago. They chopped his head off yesterday. And and you're looking at this stuff and you're like, wait a second. Saudi Arabia, I mean, it's probably a fun place to visit, right? But I wouldn't say it's westernized. I wouldn't say that it has like these... I, I, the WWE had a hard time wrestling over there. There's like no women wrestlers, but this thing, whole kind of thing started because people were seeing that Saudi Arabia was becoming too westernized, too liberal. It's not those things at all. Those are are words I would not use to describe the government of Saudi Arabia. This event actually worked. King Khaled watched this happen, had these people executed and go, this is what happens if you believe in extremism. But then he thought, I don't want that to happen again. Like if that's, I got these people on this side who are saying we need to be more equal and we need to be open and we need to be more tolerant. And then I have the people on this side who are willing to take over the great mosque of Mecca at gunpoint. These people are telling me, you know, I might win the peace prize and these people might overthrow me. You had members of his cabinet, of his court, saying King Khaled... We brought this upon ourselves. This was divine retribution because we fell too far. We were publishing pictures of women in the newspaper. Like, what's next? Like, are we really becoming a decadent society like these guys were saying? So King Khaled actually looked at this and said, maybe they're right. Let me read you a quote from a book called Inside the Kingdom, Kings, Clerics, Modernists, Terrorists, and the Struggle for Saudi Arabia, written by Robert Lacey. Quote, Those old men believed that the mosque disaster was God's punishment to us because we were publishing women's photographs in the newspapers, says a princess, one of Khaled's nieces. The worrying thing is that the king probably believed that as well. Khaled had come to agree with the sheiks. Foreign influences were the problem. The solution to religious upheaval was simple. More religion, unquote. One of the things that grew out of this 
ruling was the Committee for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice, which was basically a religious policing force. They would drive around, they would famously make sure that women were wearing the proper dress code, that there was gender segregation in public spaces. Most controversially, one of the things they did, this sounds insane, on March 11th, 2002, there was a burning school in the city of Mecca. This elementary school is on fire. And these schoolgirls were trying to run out of the burning school. The religious police wouldn't let them. There has to be more. There has to be more to the story. But apparently, they wouldn't let them because they weren't dressed in the headscarves and the black robes. And they didn't have a male guardian with them. They couldn't do this. So they weren't letting them escape from a burning school. That's insane. 15 girls died and 50 were injured in this fire. There's actually widespread outrage over this. And they're like, oh, we're just doing our jobs. We're not supposed to be outside with headscarves. The school was on fire. So these groups like this were empowered by the mosque seizure. There's a difference between saying, let's slow down social change. And another thing by not letting girls escape a burning school unless they go back to get their headscarf, which is probably on fire itself. So it went from a society that was becoming more open, which there were people in Saudi Arabia who didn't like that, to becoming something that was almost a parody of conservative beliefs. I mean, that's that's just absurd. Fascinating story. I I I, it, 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 I think there's a thing when we look at history, we always see it as a march in one direction, but it never ever is. Nick Bustin Gustin asked me, he's a Patreon supporter, if you don't know who that guy is, Nick Bustin Gustin asked me a question for my third anniversary special, I didn't get to cover it on the show, but what's a conspiracy theory, I don't remember the exact question, but it's something like, what's a conspiracy theory that's unpopular that you believe? And I say this all the time, and people always argue with me on it, but I say this all the time, I go, we are maybe two weeks to a month away from, at best, a crackdown, at worst, a genocide at any given time. I believe that at any moment in human history, something so bad can happen. A meteorite strike, a massive plague, huge economic downturn, and people will immediately look for someone to blame. And they will beg their leaders to do something about it. Now, a lot of people don't agree with me on that. A lot of people have a little more hope in the human race. Or faith in themselves that they would try to stop that. People were pulling their neighbors out of their house and beating them with clubs. But I do think we're that close. I'm an optimist, too. That's why I'm giving it two weeks to a month. And I think stories like this go to show that. Like It's just crazy to think that this event changed the course of an entire nation. At the end of the day, people are fearful and people hate how much they're afraid i think this story just highlights how fragile the social contract is between people and their government and people and their religion any religion this can happen with any religion out there when people are afraid people demand answers they demand help even if that comes at the expense of other people's freedoms we have seen it throughout human history. And if you think for a moment that we as a species are past that sort of primal fear, 
you really haven't been paying attention. And it could pop up again. It will pop up again. The question is, what will you do when they come for your neighbors? DeadRabbitRadio at gmail.com is going to be our email address. You can also hit us up at facebook.com slash DeadRabbitRadio. Twitter is at DeadRabbitRadio. Dead Rabbit Radio is the daily paranormal conspiracy and true crime podcast. You don't have to listen to it every day, but I'm glad you listened to it today. Have a great one, guys.